From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For the first time, Governor Jared Polis talks publicly about the protests and unrest gripping Colorado and the nation. We need to listen to the voices of those who are crying out for reform. We need to take action. Plus, his concerns about the potential spread of coronavirus during the protests. Then, as businesses reopen, a question keeps coming up. Are people safe at work from the novel coronavirus? And if they don't go back, is unemployment still an option? Everyone's being forced to choose between their livelihoods and their health. We'll answer Colorado Wonders questions about employee and employer rights and whether anyone actually investigates if someone thinks a workplace is unsafe. Plus, two finalists from Colorado in NPR's Student Podcast Challenge, both from the same school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Governor Jared Polis called the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police brutal and inhumane, and he called it murder. Polis spoke about the killing and the protests for the first time at a press conference Tuesday. This is a pattern. We see it starkly, we see it visually with the murder of George Floyd, but we all know in our heart of hearts that there are countless times that this has occurred without the video footage, without the conclusive evidence, uh, and it's something that many Americans of color live in fear of uh, for their children and for themselves. It's about a pattern of injustice. It's about unfair treatment that black Americans and communities of color have endured not just limited to our criminal justice system, but in many areas of American life that we take for granted. Polis also talked about the protests and the possibility that large gatherings will lead to more cases of COVID-19. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has been covering the coronavirus pandemic since March. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks, Avery. Governor Polis's press conference was billed as an update on COVID-19, but he spent much of it talking about the death of George Floyd and the protests nationally and in Colorado. What struck you about what he said? He talked about the anguish many Coloradans and U.S. citizens are feeling right now. He said he watched all the footage of George Floyd's death at the hands of police, particularly the nearly nine minutes when Floyd lost consciousness and died. Polis says he's pleased the officer has been charged with murder. He also called the other officers on the scene when Floyd died complicit, and he praised citizens who were there and tried to intervene. Polis called Floyd's killing part of a pattern of injustice. Did he talk about what role he can play in all this? The governor said we need to listen to those who are asking for reform. He hopes to work with the folks who are protesting, he said. And he acknowledged that lots of people, especially people of color, don't feel they can be out and about doing everyday things without fearing for their lives. The governor responded to the president's call for military action in reaction to protests. What did he say exactly? He said the president's threat to deploy federal troops is counterproductive and shows a real failure of leadership. Part of leadership is is feeling and understanding the anguish, um, the pain that so many Americans feel. Americans who believe that we, we, we lived in a better America, one that had uh, overcome um, many aspects of our legacy uh, of racism uh, stemming from the days of slavery. 
Polis said we all need to come together and that the responsibility to change is all of our responsibilities. CPR's Caitlin Kim later asked Polis uh, if the president has the power to deploy the military to the protests. And Polis said he's not sure of the president's ability to do that, but it, it would be a very bad idea. As we said, Polis also addressed COVID-19 and the possibility that the protests could further spread the virus. What did he say? He said the protests have kept him up at night in part due to the risk of so many people getting infected. He worries that people together um, during these protests could lead to hundreds of new cases just as the state's making progress during the pandemic. He did say he was relieved to see many protesters wearing masks, but the state has just been so careful to avoid large gatherings and lots and lots of folks have been packed together during the protests downtown Denver and other cities like Colorado Springs. The governor says it's pretty much a certainty that some demonstrators have COVID and are asymptomatic, and those people can still be contagious. And he also told all of the protesters to go get tested, right? Yeah, he encouraged everyone who'd taken part to get tested. He said seven days after marching, people should go to the Pepsi Center in Denver for a free test for the virus. And he reiterated that there are more than 40 community testing sites all across the state. And Polis also gave an update on where the state is in terms of coronavirus. What's the latest? Um, well, he um, said that the state continues to trend in the right direction. There have been fewer hospitalizations. As of the latest numbers we've had asked, access to, the state has had about 26,000 cases, about 1,500 deaths from those cases, and a little more than 4,400 people have been hospitalized. Now, going back to the protests, what did police say about the damage to the nation's cities, particularly Denver? Well, he said at a time when so many small businesses are hurting due to the coronavirus, he worries about all the vandalism going on and the cost to these business owners. So the economic effects of the destruction downtown combined with what's already happening with COVID is clearly concerning him a lot. And Polis announced that the state is increasing contact tracing and testing. What will that look like? He said the state can now do about seven to 8,000 tests a day, which is a huge jump from earlier on in the pandemic. He said uh, earlier on, though, that he had hoped to get 8,500 or even 10,000 uh, tests daily by the end of May. So the state isn't quite there yet. He also mentioned the state is hiring 800 more contact tracers that they'll use. AmeriCorps and Senior Corps volunteers uh, will do much of that. And the goal, of course, is to contact all the people who've been exposed to someone with the virus and get them to quarantine. Um, the state has been increasing the number of contact tracers, but uh, the, still the number is uh, far below what experts think uh, is needed here. Now, Polis has often talked about the importance of Coloradans spending time outdoors and exercising despite the pandemic. And yesterday, he really encouraged people to go outside, right? Yeah, that seems to be a theme for him. He often mentions Coloradans' love of the outdoors when he talks about the virus. And now that many parks are opening up, he really championed the idea of getting out. He says now that playgrounds are opening, he'll probably take his kids there, that they love playgrounds, especially his daughter. But he also said he'll avoid them if he sees too many people gathering. And he talked about how youth and adult sports leagues are able to resume now and that swimming pools are opened with limited access. So some things um, for folks to look forward to in the upcoming months. Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
CPR's Andrea Dukakis on the governor's first public comments on, about the ongoing protests in Denver and other parts of Colorado. The past week has brought dramatic images of confrontations between protesters and police, but there are also moments that have been two sides have tried to come together and understand one another. From Grand Junction, CPR's Stina Sieg has the story of two potentially unlikely allies who have started that conversation. Stay strong, guys. It's Monday afternoon, and a group of about 50 young demonstrators are marching through the small cities downtown. The crowd includes several players from Colorado Mesa University's football team. And toward the back, their coach, Tremaine Jackson, who's black, says they're here to stand up for George Floyd and also stand up against the racism they experience in this community. This issue is something that I live with daily. Um, I just happen to be the head football coach here. And so uh, we're not going to run from the issues at all. Uh, We just want to uh, address it. Make sure it's acknowledged and and form a plan to move on. Walking next to Jackson is Grand Junction Police Chief Doug Shoemaker, who's white. They connected after the chief wrote a long thread of tweets condemning Floyd's death. We're planning on kind of setting an example and addressing some of the issues that we need to address, quite frankly. So uh, we're going to do that as a team, one team. Shoemaker says the two will stay connected on these issues, even after the protests fade away. And I think once we start respecting the rights of one another and we start talking about those things openly, maybe we can be an example for other places. As the group continues down Main Street, they get some stares, but also encouragement from passersby. Good for you. Keep going. They do, in the bright sun and baking heat, toward the police station and walk right inside. Things quickly go from kumbaya to much more complex as Chief Shoemaker takes questions from the crowd. One young man says he's personally seen injustice from Grand Junction police. I need action. I don't want to talk. And he questions why it took a tragedy to address the issues he believes are in the department. How long have you been on the staff? We could have been talking. We could have been talking, he says. Let's go. Okay. Then walks out, a small group following him. Coach Jackson tells his players to stay put, but others in the room are still frustrated. I'm saying he's going to acknowledge that there's a problem. We know that. Has it, Chief, have you acknowledged that there's a problem? A big problem. Thank you. He's acknowledged it. Thank you. And I think that's what we need, man. Chief Shoemaker tells the group that one way they can make a difference is to join his department themselves. Seriously. It's an open application process all year round. Then one of the young protesters walks up to the chief and shakes his hand. I don't, I don't know what the plan is, but this is the first step. Chief Shoemaker asks him and everyone else in the crowded lobby to hold him accountable for making his department better. And give us some time. This is not an overnight thing. This is a marathon, not a sprint. But my pledge to you on film, and even on our own department film, is that hold me accountable. That includes Coach Jackson, who says the two of them are going to start having regular talks about shifting the culture of racism. With two conversations this week alone. We're going to meet as many times as we need to meet in order to make change. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Colorado moved to its safer-at-home orders more than a month ago. That's left workers with a big question. Are they safe at work? 
CPR's Andrew Kenny joins us today to talk about the growing disputes between employees and employers in the pandemic workplace. Andy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the big picture. What kind of disagreements are you hearing across the state? Well, now that workplaces are starting to reopen, especially retail stores and restaurants, bosses are naturally asking their employees to come back. But what we're hearing from a number of employees is that, you know, they don't want to. The answer is is no for some. And there's some tension coming from that. Here's Jake Lyon. He works at a tea shop up in Fort Collins. He and the other employees said that they were worried that the shop was not big enough to reopen safely. And we wanted, you know, our case to be, um, definitely we wanted ourselves to be taken care of and, like, not lose an employment. But we also want, like, the state to recognize that, like, this is happening to everyone. Like, everyone's being forced to choose between their livelihoods and their health. What happens when a worker refuses that job? Well, it's a major risk, as Jake Lyon found out, because, first of all, you have to ask, do I want to come back to this job later? Unemployment in parts of Colorado is above 20%, so it may not be a great idea to just give up a job. And then, moreover, if you're getting unemployment benefits like Jake Lyon is, you could lose them. And that's actually what ended up happening. His employer said, if you're not coming back, then we need to let you go, and reported it into the state, and uh, Lyon subsequently lost his benefits, he said. How often is that happening? So far, the state has counted just about 150 people who have been kicked off the unemployment system for refusing work, and the state says it has received more than 1,100 reports of job refusals in general. That's obviously just a small fraction of the hundreds of thousands of people who are on unemployment now, but it's also way higher than normal. The state's received about twice as many of these refusal reports just during the pandemic as it did during the entirety of last year. How worried should workers be about these reports? Overall, they've had pretty decent odds of keeping their benefits. Only about 16% of workers end up losing them upon review, and that means you're not getting paid by unemployment anymore. But that's actually a higher percentage than it was pre-pandemic, and it's a pretty risk, risky gamble for these folks if you don't have other income. Here's Elena Rose Temez. She came back to a childcare job briefly, but then she decided to quit because people weren't wearing masks. I'm pretty sure I should be okay to get accepted just because I have so much proof of what they were doing there that they were not keeping anybody safe. Um, but it's still kind of stressful, like, oh, what if I don't, though? Like, what if the state is trying to kick people off unemployment and they're just like, nope, sorry, you had a job and you gave it up. So it's been it's been kind of stressful. And she said she was pretty sure she was going to get accepted to unemployment because she had proof, but it was stressful. What happens if it doesn't happen? What if the state actually wants to kick people off unemployment? And as I mentioned earlier, some people actually are losing those benefits. Can anyone decide to stay on unemployment because they feel unsafe at work? Or do they have to demonstrate vulnerability, like a health condition that puts them at risk? How is the state making these decisions? Well, it's a really good question. And unfortunately, the answer is a little vague. And it reminds me that we actually got a question in Colorado Wonders from someone who had worked in a hotel. The job was changed to be more public facing when he was called back. And he ended up being a pretty concerned about whether he was going to catch COVID-19 from all this public interaction. And he wanted to know, yeah, whether he could quit and keep getting unemployment. And the state, when they review a case like that, they're going to look at a couple of different factors. But the biggest question is, 
was it substantially different than the old job? So they're going to look, is it riskier in that guy's case? Or uh, has the role itself changed? Have the wages changed? And then they're also, during this time of the pandemic, looking at questions like, is this a vulnerable worker who's going to be at risk to it? And basically, they, they ask both sides to submit documentation showing whether the workplace is, is relatively risky or whether the employee is at risk. And then the Labor Department reviews that and they make their decision. And they said, actually, a lot of the people who have lost benefits, it's been because they didn't really submit much documentation to show why they quit or why they didn't want to go back. Do you know if the state is considering the vulnerability of people in the households of workers? Yes, they are. Um, it, the state is saying if you live with an at-risk person, you are more likely to keep collecting benefits, Good. even if you refuse a job. Is anyone actually investigating workplaces for safety? Mm, yes and no. So the unemployment system, that's not really their job. They're more reviewing the paper file and the documents. But local public health departments, they are in charge. They're kind of the front lines of checking in on these COVID-19 restrictions. And... You know, they can go out in response to a complaint usually and, and see that a business is properly doing distancing, for example. But their capacity is really limited and they're not really proactively going and doing this. Here's Teresa Anselmo, the executive director of the Colorado Association of Local Public Health Officials. The challenge becomes we have had a significant disinvestment in the public health system over the last couple of decades. And so we were on a really thin margin to begin with, and you add something like COVID on top of that, which just multiplies exponentially, the number of places where they may have to respond to and do investigations in and verify that things are going well, and it just becomes very, very difficult. And so most of the agencies are having to respond on a complaint-only basis and as their staffing allows. The general advice for workers or others who are concerned about a workplace is to go to the local health department first. If they don't get a response, they can try the governor's office uh, through the state website at covid19.colorado.gov. And, you know, the long story short is that a lot of these disputes, there's not a clear answer and they're going to end up settled between the workers and their bosses in many situations. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you, Avery. That's CPR's public affairs reporter, Andrew Kinney. If you have questions about how your work situation, you can submit them to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Both the pandemic and the protests continue to disrupt RTD. The state's largest transit agency has limited service right now because of the nightly curfew. But CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports the bigger question is whether passengers will get back on board as pandemic restrictions continue to ease. When Paul Ballard took over as RTD's top staffer back in February, the agency was in the midst of a crippling driver shortage, a system-wide overhaul, and delays to a big rail project. And then the coronavirus hit. I've managed through a couple of earlier viruses, but nothing like this. Ballard's been at this a long while. He ran transit agencies in Tennessee and Texas, including through the 2014 MERS scare. He started in Denver the last week in February, 
just before Colorado's first reported cases of COVID-19. You know, my first two weeks here, we provided about uh, 375,000 trips on a weekday. Then the state started to shut down. And around the March 15th, 16th, 17th, the bottom completely fell out. Ridership is down about 70%. The agency cut service in April and stopped collecting fares to keep passengers away from drivers. Officials even told people to stay home. As long as I've been doing this business, I've never encouraged people not to ride transit. More than 100,000 people still ride RTD every weekday. And many rely on its buses and trains to get around. As the state reopens, the new question for RTD is whether commuters who do have a choice, say they have a car in the garage, are they going to get back on board? If all of those people swarmed back to work tomorrow and didn't take transit, um, we'd have a mess on our hands, quite frankly. Ron Papsdorf is Director of Transportation Planning and Operations at the Denver Regional Council of Governments. Luckily, that's not the way this is going to happen. Papsdorf says employers will gradually let their workers back into the office, and that will give people time to get comfortable. He thinks some commuters in more suburban areas may switch to driving, but he says downtown Denver will be different. Before the pandemic, nearly half of commuters there use transit. A lot of them probably didn't have access to parking or don't have a parking space necessarily paid for. It's just really hard and costly to drive and park in dense areas like downtown. But RTD just doesn't know if those difficulties will bring passengers back, and how many. A recent survey shows that most don't think riding RTD is safe right now. They say a vaccine would make them feel more safe, but that's clearly beyond RTD's control. So the agency is taking more modest steps. By July, Ballard hopes to have enough masks and sanitizing wipes that RTD can give them away to passengers. That's our goal right now, and that's what we're working towards, because we've got to get back in the business of, of collecting fares because you know we've taken such a big hit. Between lost fares and sales tax revenue, RTD will have to make big budget cuts. The agency's board will vote on a plan that will likely include furloughs and other cost-saving measures. The driver's union is fighting the furloughs. Board member Chantel Lewis says RTD should look for savings elsewhere, especially because those drivers have helped the agency survive its worker shortage. It actually makes me quite emotional to think that we would have operators work six days a week for years, and now we're talking about, you know, furloughing folks. The service cuts have solved RTD's pre-existing driver shortage, but only temporarily. If RTD is successful in attracting back passengers, it'll also have to make sure it has enough drivers for all those new buses and trains. The state's top political leaders will be watching RTD's next moves, too. Governor Polis says he wants a new independent body to provide oversight for RTD. Lawmakers say they'll introduce a bill to establish that in the legislative session. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. When we come back... Some Colorado kids new to podcasting find out they're among the best. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. I am humbled by the fact that people voluntarily give us money and puts a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders to give you back the best radio we can. It is an honor that people support this service and have done so for decades. I'm membership director Jason Moore. 
CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity. Young people get a national, even global audience through NPR's Student Podcast Challenge. Middle and high schoolers compete for a chance to be heard on Morning Edition and All Things Considered. There are 25 finalists this year, and two of them come from the same school in Colorado, Cloverleaf Enrichment School in Castle Rock. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with teacher Karen Penry and some of her students, Emma Smith, Dawson Fox, and Audra Marriott. Well, Emma, Dawson, Audra, and Ms. Benry, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Such a big opportunity to be here. And Karen, do do the students call you Ms. Penry? I want to make sure I get that right. It's Mrs. Mrs. Penry. Okay, my apologies. You've been teaching for 12 years, eight of them at Cloverleaf in Castle Rock. I wonder how you decided podcasting would be a, a good teaching tool. So Cloverleaf Enrichment School is a homeschool enrichment program. And so we really try to give the kids opportunities that they might not otherwise have. But we also want to give them real life experiences. And my boss sent me an email because he had heard about the podcast. And I just decided to um, scrap what we were going to do for spring semester. And we jumped in with the podcast. We came back from Christmas break and I told the kids, We're going to do a podcast. A couple of kids said, what's a podcast? But for the most part, the kids were thrilled that we were going to do something like this. Ah. So these uh, are all kids who are schooled at home, and then Cloverleaf provides more for them. And and in this case, it was the the podcast curriculum, huh? Yes. Mm -hmm. So they come to school one day a week. Got it. Well, the the entries, they are really both remarkable. Um, You selected some tough topics to cover. And I want to start with the forgotten flood of 1965. We were probably the last ones across the bridge. Watching the water coming across the highway there, just like a rolling water. Of course, the roads all washed out and we couldn't get home for several days. Huge balls of mud and the trees and the houses and stuff that are all coming down, down the creek. We couldn't warn anybody down the creek because we lost all communication. We would see sometimes like a cow floating by. A lot of horses. They couldn't get them out of the barns. And the smell was just horrible. Emma, Westward called the 1965 flood Denver's greatest disaster. Uh, why is it forgotten? Well, I think we all felt like it was kind of forgotten because none of us, when we started, we none of us really knew about it. And none of like our parents had really told us about it. And none of our siblings had heard about it. So in our little small world, I think we kind of felt like it was forgotten to us. Like our generation didn't really know about it, I guess. Uh, we hear from so many different people who experienced the flood firsthand in your podcast. How, how did you find these folks? Miss Henry definitely um, hooked us up with lots of people. We looked on Facebook. We contacted um, the historical museums and a guy in the newspaper in on Westford Magazine. We found a number for that and we called him and... This lady picked up, and she works worked at his agricultural farm. And so we were like, hey, we were wondering if you could give us an interview. And she was like, 
yeah, I actually, I think some of our old, uh, all our friends could do interviews too. And it just, we kind of pulled pieces from a bunch of places to contact lots of people. Mm. A lot of shoe leather. That's, we, we call that shoe leather, where you are kind of uh, pounding the pavement trying to find people. Emma, what was the most surprising thing to you about the 1965 flood? Probably that so much destruction happened and not a lot of people died. I mean, and 27 people still died, which is still a lot, mm. but it like barely anything compared to all of the destruction and chaos that it caused. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. The, the next entry is called 40 Years Cold. The story of how a Colorado woman's murder was solved nearly 40 years after the fact. It was a cold, frosty night on January 16, 1980. Helene Przinski had just gotten off her bus from work and was walking the six blocks from the bus stop to her house. Perhaps she was looking forward to a nice dinner and a cup of warm cocoa. Maybe she was just looking forward to a good night's sleep after a long day at work. Who knows what she was thinking in her final hours. Little did she know that this would be her last night ever. Krasinski was raped and murdered just two weeks after moving to Colorado for a journalism career. Uh, Dawson, why did you want to tell this story? I feel this story was important to tell because it was something that was close to where we all lived. Yeah. Uh, In other words, a little bit of history in your own backyard. That's what it felt like to you. Yes. I understand. If I can jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Dawson is a true crime junkie (laughs) from what I understand. So um, she kind of led us, this class, down this road when when they were brainstorming the ideas. So that's really why they ended up with a crime story is because she has lots of listening experience with true crime podcasts. How did you find this particular crime, Dawson? For this story, it was actually Miss Penry who told us about the story. So So she was your guide. And what is it you like about true crime podcasts? I really like the the stories. I feel there's a lot to tell and I'm really fascinated by it. Yeah, it's kind of built-in mystery. I understand that that uh, you and your classmates Audra wrote your own interview questions. You were in touch with detectives who worked on the case. What were the sorts of things you were most eager to ask them, Audra? Well, um, I had a lot of questions like, how are you supposed to be able to solve a 40-year-old cold case? I mean, that seems really impossible. Yeah. Questions just like that, because, yeah, that's got to be really difficult. So they did solve the case. I, I, I think I haven't given up too much information when I say that. Is that okay? The world knows or yeah. the news knows that he he's pled guilty to the crime. I wonder if this ever got scary, like if it kind of haunted you at night. Audra, did you feel that? Dawson? A little bit. I mean, I certainly don't want to be kidnapped when I'm just walking home. Yeah, Th- those were the circumstances. I mean, I'm used to hearing all these kinds of stories, so it didn't really frighten me. 
Yeah, you're so exposed to these through those podcasts. Audra, what do you think? I don't really listen to many cold case podcasts, but after making one, I think I'm definitely going to get more into it. Uh, You're hooked, in other words. Yes. I'm curious, this is a question for all of you, is making a podcast harder than you thought it would be? Emma, how do you answer that? It was kind of a little bit more difficult. It took longer than I thought it would take. But my brain always has a way of making things more complicated than it should be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you and me both. What made it so hard? You had gotten all these such great inspirational stories, and you just didn't know which pieces to put together, which things fit with which things, and, like, how long you should make a clip or if it Mm. sounds right. And it was just a lot of collaborating, and it just, it was a little bit difficult to figure out the perfect combination, because I feel like that's what we were all hoping for, was the perfect combination that would make it sound so good. Yeah, boy, I identify that as someone who's in radio. Dawson, one of my challenges is where do I start? How do I begin the story when I have all these elements? Did you have that issue too? I think we had a little bit of that issue because there were just so many places you could begin to tell this story and it was a little bit difficult to figure out how to start it. But Yeah, where, where did you start it? Well, we started at almost at the beginning with her last night. Well, that feels Originally, quite like, yeah, go ahead. So the girls had started by doing some research and they found an article that really talked about when the criminal, when he'd been cased out in the bar, when they finally came to making the arrest. And that's where they had started. Mm. As the podcast came together, I suggested to them that maybe they wanted to rewrite that uh, beginning portion. And I just told the girls to think about, you know, she thought it was a normal day and she ended ended up getting kidnapped and killed. So that's kind of where they went. And they wrote that beautiful beginning that you, that you played. Yeah. I will say though, I'm quite impressed, Audra, that you thought maybe we should start at the end. Cause that's really, that's really cool thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that you'll keep making podcasts, any of you, Emma? Um, I don't know. It was definitely a team effort. I don't know if I'd be able to make one on my own, because without my classmates, this podcast would have been toast. (laughs) (laughs) What about Dawson? What do you think about making podcasts in the future? I think making podcasts is something I would really enjoy doing as a career. My family and I joke about I will be a podcaster, and my sister will be a forensic scientist. <laughs> <laughs> it runs in the family, this, in, this interest, huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Audra? Yes. Um, I think that it's really fun. Um, I would definitely want to make another one. Probably not turn it into a career, although that would be a very fun career, but... What do you think you'd yeah. do a podcast on? What subject? Maybe another cold case. I find it fascinating. Oh, okay. Uh, Mrs. Benry, do you think this is a, a tool you'll be using in the classroom in the future? 
Yes, absolutely. What makes you say that? And what, what word might you have for other educators? I'm a big proponent of the project-based learning, and this is real-life activities. The kids took these projects from beginning to end. They did all of the work, and I really sat back as their coach rather than a typical classroom that you think of where the teacher's standing in front of the class lecturing and the students are taking notes. Well, Emma, Dawson, Audra, Mrs. Penry, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So you. Much. Thank you. Emma Smith, Dawson Fox, Audra Marriott, and their teacher, Karen Penry, speaking with Ryan Warner. They're finalists in NPR's Student Podcast Challenge, and we just learned this morning that they did not win, but we want to extend our congratulations for their great showing in the competition. When we come back, using a love triangle to explore the relationships and attitudes that shape the land. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a tumultuous time in Colorado, and CPR News wants to hear your voice. Thursday, join Colorado Matters for a statewide listening session. Whether you've been protesting or watching from home, share your perspective on what's happening in the streets of Colorado and what you're going through. Call 303-871-9191, extension 480, to be a part of this Colorado Matters listening session. Again, 303-871-9191, extension 480. It's a story that explores the relationships and attitudes that shape the land, set in McElmo Canyon in southwest Colorado. It's near the Canyon of the Ancients National Monument at the Utah border. It's where author Chuck Greaves lives. His, his novel, Church of the Graveyard Saints, is now up for a Best Fiction Award from the Colorado Authors League. We spoke before the book was published last fall. You're not from Montezuma County. You lived in Los Angeles and you worked as a lawyer for a couple of decades, but you moved out to McAlmo Canyon about seven years ago. Tell me about your ranch and vineyard that got you to move out to Colorado. Well, when my wife and I left Los Angeles in 2006, we actually wanted to move to this area, to the uh, Four Corners area, and specifically to McAlmo Canyon, because we had some dear friends who had bought a ranch here. But we looked around and couldn't find a place that we liked. So we ended up spending six years in Santa Fe. But we always had the idea that we wanted to end up here in McElmo Canyon. And finally, we found the perfect place, which was right across the road from our friend's ranch. And lo and behold, I was always kind of a wine aficionado. And the property we ended up buying had a vineyard. So now I, I split my time between writing novels and, and tending a vineyard. And what does it look like out there? Uh, it's beautiful red rock country. If listeners are familiar with uh, southeastern Utah, places like Canyonlands or, or Capitol Reef, McElmo Canyon is like a little slice of that kind of red rock canyon country that extends across the border into southwestern Colorado. So let's talk about your book. The protagonist, Addie Decker, returns to her family's ranch after years of absence, and she quickly finds herself embroiled in conflicts about the land where her family has been ranching cattle for generations. But that ranch is also sitting on a large carbon dioxide deposit, and it turns out there are lots of opinions about what to do. Tell me about those conflicting views of land that are the center of this story. Well, the canyons of the ancient National Monument, McElmo Canyon is the southern border of the monument, it is the home to the largest or densest collection of uh, archaeological ruins in the country. It's estimated there are about 30,000 ancestral Puebloan sites 
in the canyons of the Ancients National Monument. It also happens to sit on uh, one of the largest and purest CO2 repositories in the world, called the Bagelmo Dome. So right away you have a conflict between archaeological resources and the pristine natural beauty of the monument area and the extractive industries that would like to mine the CO2 in the ground there. What they do is they, they, they drill for CO2 here and they send it in pipelines down to Texas where they use it for secondary recovery in the oil exploration business. So they, they pump CO2 from the ground here, send it to Texas and Oklahoma, and pump it back in the ground there to uh, boost oil production. Uh, so there's an inherent uh, tension between uh, those two possible futures for the area, and that tension forms the backdrop for the story. So those very real environmental concerns and archaeological concerns really set the stage. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like you have a lot of empathy for the different views that you represent in your story. You have ranchers and people extracting CO2, and you also have people who are enjoying the archaeology. Do you see yourself more in one of these than another? You know, once I finished my first draft of the book and I stepped back to sort of look at what I had here, I concluded that what I had was a kind of almost Shakespearean tragedy, where you had the Capulets of resource extraction and the Montagues of environmental protection. <laughs> and that formed a backdrop uh, for what uh, is a very personal story about a love triangle, basically. And the love triangle is between Addie Decker, who's our protagonist. She's a 25-year-old young woman who grew up in the Cortez area, left thinking she'd never come back. Uh, and uh, her environmental studies professor, with whom she's in a relationship, she does come back to her hometown with him, and sure enough, when she gets here, her old high school boyfriend is lying in wait, if you will, and he, as it happens, works for the company that's drilling CO2 adjacent to her family's ranch. So you have this very personal story of a love triangle set against the backdrop of development versus conservation. Do you think that development and conservation are really locked in this sort of Shakespearean tragedy where, of course, we know Romeo and Juliet, they both die tragically? Are, is the situation so fraught in Cortez? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I think as a county, Montezuma County, which is one of the poorest counties in Colorado, is going to have to make a decision here pretty soon as to which way it wants to go. And those are the issues that we explore in the book. And in the story, Addie's boyfriend, Bradley, is an environmental and sustainability professor at UCLA. And you write from his perspective, Bradley was standing quite literally at ground zero in America's battle against global warming and humankind's fight for survival. Is that just something that his character believes, or is that something that you also believe about Southwest Colorado? Well, you know, I think a lot of times readers mistake the words that come out of a character's mouth for the opinions of the author. In this, in this case, the book is written from four different alternating points of view. So there's four point-of-view characters. One is Addie. One is Bradley, who's the environmental studies professor who thinks the way you just described. One is Colt, who works for the, the gas company, who thinks very differently than Bradley does. And the fourth is Addie's father, a man named Logan Decker, who's a rancher, who feels more like Colt does. He favors resource extraction. He sees it as the only hope for ranchers in his area where there's drought and there's depressed prices for beef. So very different attitudes are expressed by different characters. 
if you're asking me my personal opinion, I, I suppose I definitely lean more toward the environmental point of view and the idea that recreation and tourism is the future of the county. But I try to express all points of view in the book, and I try to give voice to all those different uh, opinions. And let's talk a little bit more about Addie, because this book really hinges on her decisions. How did her character come into being? I think that the germ of the book was this idea of coming home, the idea of going away and coming home. And I, and I experienced this personally. I mean, I, I when I turned 18, I left New York where I grew up, and I went to college in California and never came home. I think a lot of young people have this idea that they want to stretch their wings and, and shake off the dust of this small town and get out and, and conquer the world. And I certainly felt that way when I was 18. But I had an interesting experience when I would go back to my old hometown, which was on Long Island in New York. And I thought of it as this flat, boring, barren sort of place. But when I went back, I was surprised, seeing it through fresh eyes, how beautiful it was and how green it was and what a lovely place it was. And I think sometimes you have to get away from a place to get a new perspective on that place. And that, I think, was the genesis of Addie, the idea of this, this young girl who grows up in a small town and can't wait to go to the big city and conquer the world. And then when she is forced to come back five years later, she sees her town with a different set of eyes. And, you know, the book culminates in uh, a decision that she has to make about where her loyalties lie. Do they lie with her family and, and the ranch that was in her family for generations? Or do they lie with her new boyfriend or elsewhere? And like you mentioned, you wrote this from several points of view. And it seems like Addie's conflicted views about land are bound up with those relationships, mostly with men. And you've got her Bradley, her father, her grandfather, her ex-boyfriend. And each of them represents a different perspective on how to use or live with the land. Tell me more about those relationships. There's this notion that first love is, is, is the purest love, or that the first person you fall in love with is the person you'll never forget the rest of your life. So there was an element of that in the relationship between Addie and Colt, her high school boyfriend. She has a fraught relationship with her father for a lot of reasons. Her father, who raised Addie as a single parent, was almost a smothering presence in her life. And then there's Bradley, who's this erudite, uh, accomplished, older man who, to her surprise, you know, shows this great interest in her and sort of mentors her and represents a future that she envisions for herself. And again, at the end of the book, she has to make a decision between uh, those three people and, and where are they going to fit in her life going forward. And that's another part of the conflict that drives the book forward. And at the climax of the book, the Montezuma militia enters the picture, and it's a militarized group of ranchers, and they've got demands for the federal government, like no more national monuments west of the Rockies, no more endangered species, no more retiring grazing permits. It reminds me of the Bundy standoff. Is there a part of the Montezuma County that you're aiming to characterize by including a militia? Uh, not to characterize, but, you know, there is that element in the, in the desert southwest. There are very different and polarized attitudes about things like public lands, cattle grazing, and property rights and water rights and things like that. And people feel very strongly about those. Uh, so yes, you know, there's the whole Bundy standoff, the Malheur standoff in Oregon, and other uh, militia-type uh, activities. I use that device to sort of bring the story to a head. Addie and Bradley, their activities to try to uh, combat the expansion of oil and gas exploration in and around the canyons of the ancients causes this militia to react. 
And I don't want to spoil the ending of the story, but Bradley's character ends up being pretty slimy. He's fighting for the environment, but he's got ulterior motives. Is this story in some way indicting the tactics people from urban areas use to champion environmental protection in rural communities? I don't think that's specifically. I think the point there is that people aren't necessarily what you think they are. In the case of uh, Bradley, he was maybe not what you thought he was uh, all along. And it's really Addie's realization of that that is part of her character arc. And are these conversations about how to use land and what shapes the land, are they the sorts of conversations you're having with your neighbors? Those issues do come up from time to time. Uh, We just went through this whole Bears Ears issue across the border in Utah where who should have access to public land, how should it be used. Uh, Those are very much front-burner issues in the Four Corners. Fortunately, the Canyons of the Ancients was spared when the National Monuments went under review, but Grand Staircase Escalante was shrunk considerably, and the Bears Ears was shrunk considerably. Those sort of hot-button issues inform the book, and they inform the discussions in this part of the world. People are talking about, yeah, what do we do with these places? Uh, Do we preserve them? Do we transition to a more recreation and tourism type of economy? Or do we keep relying on on the easy money uh, that comes from oil and gas exploration despite all the negative consequences? So those are very real issues for us here in the Four Corners, and I suspect they will be for many years to come. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Avery. Thank you. That's Chuck Greaves, who lives in McElmo Canyon in Montezuma County. He wrote Church of the Graveyard Saints. We spoke in May of last year. The novel is a finalist for Best Fiction from the Colorado Authors League. The winner will be announced Sunday. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the team who puts this show together. Carl Bielek, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Alexandra McMahon, Michael Hughes, Natasha Watts, and Ryan Warner. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.